All righty. Well, it's wonderful to have you all here with us this cold, no, not too cold, but dreary. It is cold. Okay, Stephanie says it is cold. Uh, this dreary um, Sunday morning, but it's bright in here, right? We have the light of Jesus, not the darkness of sin. You can make a whole bunch of little metaphors there. Um, so we're going to continue in our sermon series today through the book of Acts. Uh, what we're going to do right quick is just go ahead and read our first section before we jump in. We're going to be in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. So I'm going to read it for us, and then we'll dive in. Uh, this is what it says. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of, uh, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Icanor, and Timon, and uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So today, we're going to look at a story in the early church that shows us that not everything was rainbows and butterflies. Not everything worked out perfectly for them. And I think it's something that we can relate to. I mean, have you ever been so busy or so distracted that you started neglecting things that were important, right? I think we can all um, sort of appreciate that. I remember, um, for me, um, one, one story of times I've dropped the ball, of the many stories. Uh, I was a freshman at Tulane University in New Orleans, where I went to school. And um, the first year, first semester at Tulane, a lot was going on, obviously. Freshman year, moving from home, right, the whole, you know, culture shock, you know, moving from um, the, the sticks of Mississippi to the big city, the big easy. And, um, and I started taking a, a classical guitar lesson. And this guy that I was taking from, I forget his name, but he was like 80. He grew up in Cuba, like um, like uh, communist Cuba, right? Like really crazy stories. He told me that, this is free, this is an aside. Um, whenever you play guitar um, with, with your fingers, the temptation is to pluck and move your hands up. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to keep your hand, you know, tight. And his uh, teacher would smoke cigars during the lesson. And to keep his hand from moving up, his teacher would put his cigar right in right beside his hand. So if he moved up, his hand would get burned by the cigar. So kind of hardcore in Cuba, that's how they did it. He didn't do that to me, fortunately. Um, anyways, so, um, so I was doing well in the class or the lesson, and he asked me to play in a recital that they had coming up. And, uh, and so I was like, yeah, this would be great. This is awesome. And so um, the next week, I show up to my lesson, and he seems really upset. It's like he's mad or something, and I'm like, I'm not sure. What did I do wrong? I totally forgot about the recital. Just totally forgot. So they had me on the list. I was show up and play, and I just didn't show up, and I didn't realize it until my next lesson. 
And he was mad. He, he said, I should fail you for the semester, but I'm not because I like you. And I was like, okay, sweet. You know, thank you for that. But sometimes we drop the ball, right? Sometimes things fall through the cracks. And that's exactly what is happening here with the early church. Things are falling through the cracks. There are some people being neglected. Um, there are some issues that are arising. There's some potential for disunity here. And what we're going to look today is how the church responds to the issues and what that teaches us as a church and how we should respond to issues that arise and what it means for us to be a part of a body of believers. How, the, how is the church supposed to operate? How are we supposed to decide who does what? That's what we're going to look at today because we don't want to drop the ball. Right, We don't want to drop the ball here on the mission of, that Jesus has given us. So to establish the context, what's going on, we see that in uh, verse 1. And I'll just read verse 1 again. It says, Now in these days the disciples, they were increasing in number, and a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So what's going on? Who are the Hellenists and who are the Hebrews? Well, um, just to start, we can recognize one issue is that there were needy widows that were not being provided for. So in this time, um, the most sort of, um, the most poor, the most uh, on the fringes of society were orphans and widows. We can understand orphans, but for widows, you depended as a lady back in the day, you depended on your husband like for your financial well-being, right? And if your husband died, you were very exposed um, in society. And so some widows were being taken care of. Some widows were not being taken care of. It said the Hebrew widows, it seems, are being taken care of. The Hellenist widows are not. So what's the difference there? Well, the Hebrew um, Jews were Jews that spoke Aramaic. That was the language of Israel. Like if you think of a, uh, um, if you think of a map of Israel, you know, it's right on the, the ocean there. Those were the Hebrew Jews. They spoke Aramaic. They were from Judea. They were like hometown folks, right? They were like, that's where Jesus was, you know, born, the same area. That's where they are right now. So you have the Hebrew Jews. Then you have the Hellenist Jews. The Hellenist Jews were Jews from the other side of the world, right? They, well, not the other side of the world, but they weren't from Israel. They were from like Turkey and Greece and like all these surrounding nations. They spoke a different language. They didn't speak Aramaic. They spoke Greek. Um, they were all Jews. They were all eth- ethnically the same, but these Hellenist folks were from away. They were from out of town, and they, they have a different history. If you remember the history of Israel, Um, the Assyrians and the Babylonians came into Israel way back in the day and they booted them out. They took the Israelites out of their their promised land. And what happened in the centuries after that, the people that were taken out of their land kind of put roots in these foreign nations. And so they took on the customs of the foreign nations. They took on the language of the foreign nations. And now you have Jews who are more like Greeks in how they talk and their traditions, whatever. And then you have Jews who are more like the traditional Jews. So there's issues there, right? Total different culture shock, different people. And the, the Hellenist widows and the Hellenist Jews are like, hey, I know we're in Jerusalem. I know that you guys are sort of, you know, the, the hometown folks, but our, our widows are getting neglected. They don't have food to eat. They don't have clothes to wear. They don't have the things that they need. What's going on? And so we can 
um, just appreciate that this could lead to a massive disunity in the church, right? If there, if if there's like one group, like, you know, we're supposed to be united in Jesus, but one group is like, hey, we're getting neglected, and and this other group's getting you know privilege here. Um, that could really tear this this group apart. So so that's what's going out. Um, a disagreement arises over um, how these widows are being taken care of. And how the apostles respond to this situation is so important because it teaches us how we need to respond to issues that arise in our church. But more than that, on what it means for us to be a part of a church, what it means for a church to do ministry and, and what is expected of the people within the church, uh, what they are called to do. And um, I think the big, the big piece here is that gospel growth can lead to problems, can lead to growing pains, but there's always an opportunity whenever, whenever that happens. The first thing we're going to learn from how the apostles respond, this is in verses 2 and 4, the first thing we're going to learn is that ministry is a team effort. And to be a part of a church is to be a part of a team, a body of people. Ministry is a team effort. So verses two to four, this is what it says. It says, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, we're gonna pick out from among us seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom who are gonna appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You notice that the apostles don't say, oh, oh, sorry, we, we'll get right on that right? They don't say, all right, sorry guys, we're going to take care of this issue. What do they say? Verse two, they say, we can't do this because we have different priorities. We have to preach. We have to pray. That's what they said. So what they do is instead of the apostles doing everything, they understand that we're part of a team here and that we can't do everything. The apostles can't do everything. We got to get other people in here and get them engaged. And so they call on other people to do the work. What we learn is that we're all here to do something. Oftentimes churches can be built on the personality of the pastor, sort of a one-man show, right? Right now, it's kind of a one-man show as far as the worship and the preaching. We're still young, right? We'll get there. Um, but the church cannot be built on one man or, or a, one family or one group of people. Down south, there are families that dominate churches, right? And, and maybe the case up here, too. But you'll see the entire church built on the charisma of, of one man or, or, or the power of one family. And what the church, tell, what we see here is that that cannot be the case, Everyone has to be involved. We are all here to do something. It's not a one-man show. And if it is, then it's unhealthy. We can't be passive members, passive participants, passive observers. Now, this was not always the case. Way back in the day for the Catholic Church, in the, in the days of the Catholic Church, before the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, if you guys are familiar with that, um, before all of that, there was a divide between the priests and the people and the priests in the ministry of the church, the people. In fact, all of the, the Catholic masses were in Latin. Even if, most people didn't even understand Latin. Like, so, you know, if you're Catholic in Germany and you speak German, you'd go to mass and it'd all be in Latin. You just sit there, you did your duty and you go back home, right? That doesn't make any sense. But, but that was the case. 
the priests did the work. The people were just there to show up. That's how it was. There was a break between the priests and the people. But that is not how God made it to be. And so come 1517, this German monk, Martin Luther, writes uh, the 95 Thesis and nails it on the door of the church in Wittenberg. And, you know, everything changes. He, 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 um, Martin Luther discovers the gospel again. That's what happens. And, and we're here today because of that happening 500 years ago. And one of the things that Martin Luther preached is called the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. And it, it comes from this uh, text here, 1 Peter 2 to 5. <coughs> says this, you yourselves are like living stones, um, are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The priesthood of all believers is the biblical teaching that we are all called to be priests, quote unquote. We all play a priestly role. We are all called to serve the church, to serve God, to serve each other. That's what it says. A holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. We're all called to do ministry. So the separation between the pastors and the people in the Catholic church shouldn't be there. We're all called to serve. We're all called to engage. We're all called to preach the gospel. That's not my job. That's our job. That's the job of the body. We're all called to serve each other. In fact, I love this passage from Ephesians 4, 11 to 12. Read this. It says, Jesus gave the apostles. He gave the prophets. He gave the evangelists. He gave the shepherds and the teachers. That's pastor. He gave them for a reason, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Who's to do the ministry? The saints. Who are the saints? Us, <laughs> me, you, all of us um, to, for, the, for the building of the body of the Christ. So what's the pastor's role? What's the apostle's role? To equip. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. That is the role of the pastor. And, and we're going to get this later, but for the apostles here, they recognize the equipping um, action as preaching the word and praying. That's, that's what equipping looks like. So, so who does the work? The people do the work. The people do the ministry. The dividing wall between pap, priest and people doesn't need to be there. We are all called to serve. And let me say this. The last thing you should say to your pastor is, Pastor, I think we should dot, 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 dot. Get on to do that. Pastor, I think you should, you know, it's like, for the pastor, it's like, well, you do it, right? <laughs> like, if you have a heart for it, you do it. Um, because maybe God has gifted you to do that, right? Because I have, and we'll get into this later, but God has called specific people to fulfill specific roles. And it takes all of us to complete and to, to do the, to work out the mission of Jesus. And so for pastors, the focus is people, not programs. We focus on people. God gave us to focus on people. In a church that is just built only on the work of the pastor and not the work of the people um, is an unhealthy church. And we can see that. Uh, I think one example of that is uh, Mark Driscoll, if you guys know who Mark Driscoll is. I like Mark Driscoll a lot as far as his preaching. He's a very good preacher. But he had too much power. 
He was a bully. He got kicked out pretty much by his elders and um, he abused his power and then their church dwindled away. It was a church of thousands of people, 10,000 people uh, in Seattle and different states and it dwindled away. And so if there's a concentration of power into one person and that person is doing all the work, they can either abuse the power or they can just get burned out. And, uh, and we don't want that. So we learn from the church um, that we are a team and ministry is a team effort. We have to depend on each other to get the work done. The second thing we see is that everyone has a role to play. If we're team players, uh, on a team, everyone has a role to play, right? Tom Brady is not going to line up on the line. He's not going to block anyone. Have you seen Tom Brady try to block someone? It's terrible. And he's not going to run the ball either. He's a horrible runner, right? He plays quarterback, right? He plays quarterback. So every person has to find their specific God-given, uniquely gifted role on the team. And if we don't, if, if we are Tom Brady's trying to run the ball or Tom Brady's trying to block, it's going to be really awkward for one, and we're not going to be successful. Um, I remember whenever I was an assistant pastor at the church I was at in Augusta, um, our pastor there was um, a very um, gifted administrator. And he loved doing like uh, big events and stuff. And, and we had a lot of success with people coming to those events. And he was great with details and delegating and all that. He was a great boss, right? That type of guy. And so he wanted me to do a camp and to do a music camp. And he called it a rock camp. And uh, I'm not gifted in that way, right? So he was like, all right, Aaron, I want you to do this. And I was like, eh, I don't really want to do that. But okay, you're the boss. And so I did it, and it was not good. It did not work out well. No one came. Um, it, it, was, it burned me out. Um, it was just not my thing. It was just not my thing. And I'm not saying that we should only do things that we're good at. Obviously, you know, we're, we're spo- as people called to serve each other, we, we serve regardless. But what I'm getting at is that God has uniquely gifted us for specific tasks and that we should use our strengths. 1 Peter 4, 10 to 11, Peter gives sort of a broad overview of the roles people have within a church. And he breaks it up into two broad categories. And I want to say this before I read this here. Peter is one of the apostles here in Acts chapter 6. He's one of the guys that delegates the responsibility to the rest of the church to pick people to serve these widows. And now we're reading what he says later on about roles in the church. So I think that's a cool connection we can make. So this is what Peter says. As each of us has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I just want to stop there. Peter says we've all received a gift from God, but it's not for ourselves. In fact, if we keep it to ourselves, we're not, we're not using the gift for the reason it was given. We are given this gift for each other. And the gift that we have, as we use it, we are being good stewards of God, of God's gift to us. If we don't use God's giftings to us for the church and for him, we're not being good stewards. We talked about stewardship a a couple of Sundays ago. This is an area that applies that maybe we don't really think about. How has God gifted you? What has God given you? to do? Where is he strengthening you? Where is his spirit sort of supernaturally empowered you? And are you being a good steward of that? It's, a, it's an act of worship. 
Whenever you use the, the gifts that God has given you, it's an act of worship. That's what it is. As we're, being steward, as we're stewarding God's grace, it's an act of worship. So he goes on to explain what these gifts are, uh, two specific gifts. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. So some of the giftings include proclaiming the word, preaching, teaching, counseling, applying scripture, um, that type of thing. So those who speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. Then the next is whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So some people are more hands-on. Some people are more boots on the ground. Some people just like to go and get it done. So speaking gifts, serving gifts. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so... Peter kind of gives two categories. There are people that speak, there are people that serve. And we see those categories here. The apostles are called to do certain things, and then these other people are called to do certain things. So what do the apostles do? Well, it's very clear what they do in verses 2 and then verse 4. It says this, it is, The apostles say, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Then verse four, it says, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What are the apostles called to do? They're called to preach and pray. That's what they're called to do. That's the priority of of the apostles. And I'll make a connection between the apostles and pastors, elders, that type of thing. They're called to preach. They're called to pray. That is so refreshing to me personally. (laughs) Not that I'm perfect pastor or whatever, but just to be reminded that that is the priority, to preach and to pray. As a pastor, there's a lot of pressure to do things that aren't this. And I'm not saying pastors are only to preach and pray, but that's the priority. There's a lot of pressure to do different things, to get the priorities out of whack. That's what I'm, that's what I'm getting at. The only thing I know that I called to do as a pastor is to preach and pray. Now, would you be satisfied if you went to a church where the only thing the pastor did was preach and pray? Do people, do, do churches today want pastors that preach and pray and spend a lot, large amount of their time preaching and praying? Do pastors even want to do that, right? But that is the priority here. So much so that they neglect these widows so that they can preach and pray. That seems sort of selfish, don't you think? If like Chris comes up to me and says, hey, you know, you need to go and really help out this person because this stuff's going on. I'm like, you know what, I can't. I got to pray and I got to preach. Chris would be like, you're a jerk, right? Aren't you a pastor? Shouldn't you be doing this stuff? Isn't that what you're supposed to do? That's exactly what they say. We can't do this because we have to preach and we have to pray. That is the priority here. Now, they don't leave the situation as it is, and we're going to get to that later. But that's the priority. They're called to preach and pray because there's an opportunity cost. The widows are being neglected, and that's not good. But if the pastors neglect the preaching of the word and prayer, then the whole church will be neglected. They won't be prayed for, and they won't get the message of Jesus that they need. There's an opportunity cost here. So yes, they could have done it, but the church would have suffered in different ways had they done it. So that's what they do. They preach and they pray. And they pray. Um, but there's something else they do that is implied here that I think is equally as important. They also lead. 
They preach, they pray, and then they lead. And we see that in verse three. It says, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we'll appoint to this day. They lead the church. They don't just say, we preach and pray, leave us alone. They lead the church to care for itself. The first thing they do, they recognize the issue. They don't sweep it under the rug. They don't act like the issue's not there. They recognize it and they respond to it. One of the worst things you can do as a leader is one, to not recognize issues or two, recognize issues but don't do anything about them. That makes people frustrated and it burns people out. Um, So they, they don't do that. They recognize the issue and they respond to it. The second thing they do, they bring the whole church together to respond to the issue. That's what it says in verse two. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. If you remember, that's like 10,000 people, 12,000 people, 15. There's a lot of people. It, they, they believe this is such an issue that they want everyone's input on this. Can you imagine if they had just brought all the Hebrews together and not the Hellenists, right? If they're like, all right, the Hellenists are being neglected here, but let's just talk to our Hebrew buddies that we're really comfortable with that we know really well. How well do you think that would have gone over? Probably not that well. They brought everyone, the Hellenists and the Hebrews, together to respond to this issue. They recognized how important this was because there was a lot of opportunity for disunity. They didn't want that. So incredible leadership there. They emphasized their role in preaching and praying. They weren't yes men. I think that's important. They didn't say yes to everyone. I know that's temptation for myself, maybe for you as well, just to say yes to every single need that comes your way. They didn't do that. They said, no, we have a priority because saying yes to these men would be saying no to God. God called them to preach and pray, not to do these things. If they said yes to these men, they would be saying no to God in the priorities given to them. The next thing they did is they created ownership in the church by delegating the responsibility of resolving this issue. What does it say? It says, therefore, brothers, the apostles talking to them, says, you pick out from among you. They didn't even pick the people. They had the church pick the people. And in doing so, the church has ownership over resolving their issues. They didn't choose the servants. It also shows they didn't view themselves as all controlling. They didn't micromanage. They trusted people to fix their own situations. And they understood that the people would make the best decision for themselves. The next thing to do, they provided thoughtful guidance in delegating. They said, you pick out seven from among you, people of good repute, full of the spirit, full of wisdom. They gave guidance. They said, okay, you figure this out, but as you figure it out, look for these characteristics in people. They offered good guidance. And then finally, they installed the people, they appointed the people that were chosen. That's what it says in verse six. They set them before the apostles and the apostles prayed and laid their hands on them. So the, the, the leaders of the church, their three main tasks were to preach, to pray, and to lead. Preach, pray, and lead. Um, I think, unfortunately, many churches want their pastor to be something that God has not called them to be. There's an incredible pressure for pastors, I believe, to be something more than pastors. 
Um, and often pastors want to be something more or different than what God has called them to be. We're not called to be savvy marketers, right? We're not called to be, um, you know, community uh, outreach, you know, um, organizers or event promoters or hype men. We're not hype men, right? I can't hype anything, right? We're not, we're not supposed to be little John or whatever, you know, the hype person is today. That's like nine, that's like early 2000s, little John, right? Maybe Riley can tell me. Who's the hype man today? Kanye is the hype man. Okay, Kanye is the hype man. We're not called to be Kanye, right? We're not called to be Kanye. Um, we're not called to be motivational speakers. We're not professionals at anything. Uh, John Piper has a book called um, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. And I love it because um, there is a professionalism that pervades churches today um, that it seems, you know, we, we got to kind of get in line as pastors if people are going to come to our church. That's just not the case. That's not what God's called us to be. We're not professional in anything. We're shepherds. We're shepherds of the flock. We're called to care for people, to preach, to pray, to love, and to lead. That's what pastors are called to be. And I just love this section because it reminds us of that. And that's what you should look for in a pastor. That's what you should look for in a pastor because that's what's important. So that, that's one role. That's what the pastor does. But then what's the other role? What's the, about these seven people that are chosen? What do they need to do? What are they called to do? Now we're going to look at the servants. Because they said, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute that will serve these women, that will serve these ladies. Um, that's what we see in verse 5. It says this, And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen. We're going to see him later on man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. They chose Philip. We're going to see him later on as well. And then it lists out the rest of the guys there. Now, what's interesting about these guys is that they all have Greek names. These are all Hellenists. The people that were having issues were the Hellenists. And the Hellenists chose other Hellenists to take care of them. It makes sense. The people that had the biggest issues were the ones given responsibility to fix the problem. And so they chose people that would be able to do that. I think it's interesting. I think it, it makes a lot of sense. All these people have Greek names and they were serving Greek widows. And so the responsibility of these guys is to serve tables. That's what it says, to serve tables, um, to provide physically, to meet physical needs. And that plays into what Peter said. Some speak, some serve. And these guys are here to serve. These guys were here for practical, hands-on ministry, meeting the needs of the church, filling the need, showing up, being a part, serving. That's what they did. Um, one aspect of what they did is that they handled the money. That's what it means to serve tables. It's like a money lender's table, money changer's table. That's what the word table means. And so these guys, they took care of the money. They, if you remember, the church was selling all their possessions and bringing all the money to the apostles. The apostles were then saying, all right, guys, you take the money, you meet the needs, we're going to continue to preach the gospel. So it's, it's a beautiful setup, the way that they set this up. Um, so before, these needs were not met. Now they are meeting these needs. But what qualifies them? Were these, did these people need experience with money? Did they need a you know, a degree in accounting or a degree in finance. What qualified these people to serve? Experience? Education? No, character. Character was the qualification. 
Verse three says, pick out from among you seven men that had a good reputation. Seven men that were full of the spirit. Seven men that were wise. Whenever we look for people to serve, oftentimes we want to look at their capabilities, their talents. What the apostle says, no, look at the type of people they are. What type of man is this man? What type of woman is this woman? I remember as a worship leader, um, to get people to serve was hard because worship leading is, well, playing an instrument is different than setting up a chair. Anyone can set up a chair, right? Not everyone can sing. Not everyone can play guitar, especially well. And so the temptation was to, if someone was really good at singing or playing, let's get them on the stage. Oh, wait, do they have a relationship with Jesus? Well, they say they do, but, you know, they kind of do all this and all that. The temptation is to get people in spots regardless of where they are with Jesus. And so one thing as a worship leader up in Augusta where I was at what was most important is where is this person with Jesus? Who, what type of person is this? Not, not saying they're perfect. We're not perfect, right? But God is looking at the heart. That's what God looks at. There definitely needs to be skill there as a player, as a singer. The last thing you want is a harmony singer that cannot sing harmony, right? That's the last thing you want. You just turn the mic off. It's a lot harder to get people off the stage than get them on the stage. Um, so I learned that the hard way, but what's most important, regardless if they can hit a note is do they walk with Jesus? That is what's important. Not how long have you been playing your instrument, but how long have you been following Christ? So that's such a, that's because again, whenever we serve, it's service to God. It's a stewardship of our gifts to God and to the church. It's a spiritual act of worship. It's not just setting up a chair or setting this up or whatever. It's an act of worship to God. That's why they cared about the character, not just that they would show up and do the work. Who are these people? Okay. And so the application for us, so we look at the role of the pastor and the role of the people, is where are you at with this? What has God uniquely gifted you to do? right? First, where are you with Jesus? That's what's important. Are you walking with him? Are you being changed and transformed by him? Are you walking in the power of the Holy Spirit? But second, if you are, if you know him, what are you doing with what he's given you? What has he given you and what are you doing with it? How are you serving the body? Because this is a team effort and we all have a role to play. We all have a role to play here. If you remember the story of the parable of the talents that Jesus told, uh, in the story, there was a master and three servants. One servant was given 10 talents. And whenever it says talents, it means money, not like 10 different, you know, talents like playing guitar, singing, whatever. But 10 bags of money. One guy was given like three. One guy was given one or something like that. The guy that was given one, what did he do with the money? He buried it in the ground because he was afraid of the master. Whenever the master came back, he said, where's the money? Did you invest it? Did you use what I gave you? The guy said, no, I buried it in the ground. I'm dusting the dirt off. Here it is. What happened to that guy? He got kicked out. He got put in the utter darkness. That's what it says. Kind of strong language there. He didn't use what God had given him. He didn't use what the master had given him, and he was punished for it. God has given us all types of things. Are we using it for him? Are we fulfilling our role for him? The sec- the th- sorry, the third thing we see here as we're kind of wrapping up, whenever we are all in this together, whenever we work together, we win. 
Whenever we work together, we win. Verse seven, it says this, after they got these men installed to meet the, the needs here. It says, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Because of the apostles' decision to delegate their responsibility to the right people, they continued to preach, they continued to pray, they continued to lead, and the widows were cared for. The result is the gospel continued to spread. People were getting saved. If you remember in Acts 1.8, Jesus gave the mission statement to the church. He, will say, he said, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Verse 7, it says that the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, exactly where Jesus told them to witness of him, exactly where Jesus told them to work. And so it's working. People are getting saved. I I want you to look at one word here that I think is very important. That word is multiplied, multiplied. The disciples greatly multiplied. I think this is a very important word because it tells us how the church grew They didn't grow by addition. They didn't grow because Peter was getting this guy saved and then Peter was getting this guy saved and Peter was doing all the work. They growed through multiplication. Peter got this guy saved and then this guy who got saved by Peter got another guy saved and then that guy who got saved by the guy that got saved by Peter got another guy and on and on and on and on and on. They multiplied each other. So the two believers became four, and the four became eight, and the eight became 16, and the 16 became 32. God was, they were reproducing themselves. That's what God has called of us. That is what the ministry of the church looks like. It's not the job of the pastor to get people saved. And, and we understand God saves people, right? I don't save people. You don't save people. God saves people. But he has called all of us to take up the responsibility of preaching the gospel, of discipling people, right? All of us, that's all of our deal here. That's not my deal, it's our deal as a church. I think for far too long, we treated church more as an event, right? That we go to, an event on Sundays, and preaching the gospel as the job of the professionals, which we've already discussed. But the church is not an event, right? The church is a people, We are a people, and gospel proclamation is the job of the church, not the pastor, but the people of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 says this, says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We, all of us. So an ambassador is a representative. An ambassador is a representation of the power behind them. An ambassador of, you know, America in a foreign language, oh, sorry, in a foreign nation represents America to that nation. So we are ambassadors for Christ. We represent Jesus to the world. God making his appeal through us. Through Paul? Yes, through Paul. But through all of us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God is making his appeal to this world through the church, through the people, through all of us. The gospel spread the way it did in the church because everyone got the mission. Not just Peter and people were just following him. No, everyone got the mission and everyone was doing it. They were all giving. They were all preaching. They were all praying. They were all serving. They were all leading. They were all loving because they had this message. 
the gospel message, salvation from sin, Jesus dead on the cross, risen from the dead, mercy, grace. It doesn't matter what you've done. Salvation, the gospel message, they had it and they spoke it and they lived it. So my prayer for all of us is that we would kind of take this charge and not let it kind of bounce off our forehead, but let it penetrate the heart that we are all called to be a part of the team, to serve, to be on mission in Jesus. And it's a scary thing. I get it. It's not comfortable, but following Jesus isn't comfortable. If you want to follow Jesus for an easy life, then you messed up. <laughs> you, you, you know, you, you, that's not what it is. It's to be on mission for Jesus, to not choose the easy way, to choose the better way the better way of the gospel. And so that is my call to all of us. Be a part of the team. Find your role. Take the mission. Internalize it. Live it out. Living for Jesus isn't easy, but it's worth it. It's worth it. The church understood that. They multiplied. They grew. People got saved. May God do this in this place right here. That's my prayer. All right, let's pray. Dear God, I just want to thank you for your word, which uh, just reminds us, Lord, of things that either we forget or things that we thought we knew or things that we had no idea of. Your word sets us straight. Your word sets us right. Um, your word is, is, a, is a sure message to us. And so I just thank you just for the example of the early church. And um, just what they did, Lord, it's, it's just amazing. These people had nothing. I mean, we have everything compared to these people. They had absolutely nothing. And yet you just saving thousands and thousands of people through them. So what does that look like for us, Lord? What does it mean for us to want to be a church like this? What, is it, what, what are we going to have to give up? What are we going to have to let go of? What are we going to have to die to? And what are we going to have to take hold of and grab and, and walk towards, Lord? So I, I just want to lift up this prayer this morning over all of us. This is definitely a next steps type of sermon, Lord. Um, as we look through it, what is our next step, Lord? I ask that you would make that um, obvious to me. Make that obvious to everyone here. What is our next step, Lord? Uh, I love you, and I thank you for this time just to preach and, and bring your word. Play a bl blessing over all these people here. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.